Emperor Menelik now stood at the head of a massive army of 100,000 warriors ready for battle. This was the largest force ever assembled in Ethiopian history. This army was not just impressive because of its size, this army was equally as impressive because of how ethnically diverse it was, which was an amazing display of national unity. Every province in Ethiopia contributed its warriors to defend our motherland. Do you know what that means to Ethiopians in our generation today? To all the Ethiopians listening right now, that means my grandfathers and my grandmothers stood alongside your grandfathers and your grandmothers shoulder to shoulder and marched north to fight and die for our country and the sovereign future of our people. So when we tell this story and you picture these warriors marching fearlessly into battle, make sure you picture yourself because your ancestors were there, rifle in their hands, ready to die for our future. That's heavy, that's beautiful, and that's something we all contribute, regardless of your ethnicity or religion, taking that our ancestors could not even speak the same language, yet they stood side by side to fight and die for you and for me. They stood side by side, ready to fight and die for Ethiopia. Onwards to Adwa. The Italians have entered the lion's den, and these Ethiopian lions are hungry. Now, uh, we've already talked a little bit about the call to war that mobilized tens of thousands of Ethiopians from all over the country to go defend their freedom. But what did that ouch, the call to war, actually say? From my own translation of the original, quote, The Lion of the tribe of Judah, elect of God, King of Kings of Ethiopia, Melech II in 1895. By the grace of God I have lived this long. He has vanquished enemies and expanded boundaries. It is by his grace that I have governed this country until this day. If I die, then so be it. I will not be saddened, for death is everyone's fate in the end. I do not think he will shame me after all this time. Now we have an enemy who destroys countries, changes religions, and has arrived passing our God-given door to the sea. Now when I saw my country's cattle dwindle and my countrymen tired due to famine, I stayed quiet, and the enemy taking advantage of this penetrated even further into our territory like a mole. With God's help, I would not relinquish my country. People of Ethiopia, I do not think I have mistreated you. You have not saddened me either. To those who have strength, lend me your strength. To those who do not, help me by praying for the sake of your child, your spouse, and your faith. However, if you try to cheat me and avoid me, I will not let you go. On the Virgin Saint Mary, I will not accept any intercession in this matter. I march to war in October. I will expect to find soldiers from Shaw in Warailu, Wallo, in the middle of October. End quote. The war drums were heard all over the empire, and according to George Berkeley, in his book The Battle of Adwa and Minlik's Rise to Power, quote, every Toko and village in every far-off glen of Ethiopia was sending out its warrior in answer to the war drum. End quote. According to ancient custom, he joined his feudal lord at the place of assembly armed with sword, shield, and spear. But now the chiefs were serving out magazines, 
rifles and copious sup supplies of cartridges, end quote. Through this, we can see how the Battle of Adwa earned its place as the historical symbol of Ethiopian unity and collaboration. Now, as Mendelik prepared for war, he simultaneously sent Alfred Ilg abroad to Europe to start a heavy PR campaign to tell Ethiopia's story to the world. See, Mendelik and Taito understood that public opinion in Europe was important in order to humanize Ethiopia and further shame Italy as a menace for invading a sovereign nation without any justification. Alfred Ilg was invaluable because he could speak English, French, German, and Italian. So he's able to tell Ethiopia's story in a way Europeans could understand. And even more valuable was the fact that Alfred Ilg could tell the Italian public what their government was hiding from them. And that was the fact that Ethiopia annihilated Italian troops at Ambaalege and Magali. And that was inevitable, that Ethiopia would come out victorious in the end, and that the Italian people were putting their young men in harm's way for a colonial enterprise that would fail miserably and cost them the sons of Italy and their lives. This was a major blow to the Italian government, who now had their own population against the colonial ventures in Africa and wanted their sons to come home. On the battlefront, it was obvious that Italy greatly underestimated Ethiopia. For example, Italy felt that even though they couldn't match Menelik's massive army, they could make up for it with superior firepower and superior discipline in their soldiers and military strategy. Big mistake. Menelik's campaigns against his rivals in Ethiopia, where he conquered Arsi, Walaita, Harar, and defeated his adversaries like Nugus Teklahaimanot and Godjam, meant that his troops had already fought in some vicious wars and had serious battle experience, which meant that they had the same or arguably more discipline than the Italian soldiers who didn't see the same type of fighting and war that the Ethiopians had, who were now marching towards Adwa as a battle-hardened force that could stand against any European army. Advantage, Ethiopia. In regards to firepower, well, I've already explained that Menelik had systematically imported hundreds of thousands of modern firearms from Europe so his warriors could defend themselves and their country. While Emperor Johannes' soldiers only a decade ago marched with outdated muzzle loaders, Menelik's soldiers carried breech loaders, which was a major upgrade in firepower. The Italian soldiers, on the other hand, carried magazine-fed, repeated rifles. However, the Eritrean Ascari fighting for them were given hand-me-down rifles that were no longer used in Europe, but deemed adequate for fighting in Africa. This meant that Menelik's soldiers had better guns than their enemy. Menelik's French-made Hotchkiss artillery were also superior to the mounting guns that Baratieri's European and Ascari units had. When it came to firepower, once again, advantage Ethiopia. The Italians may have had thousands of fresh troops arriving at Massawa from Italy. However, feeding that many soldiers was incredibly difficult, especially in the remoteness of the Ethiopian highlands. And they were forced to import cattle from India to feed their soldiers and then had to transport their supplies from Massawa all the way into Ethiopia, where Menelik's troops and bandits would intercept their caravans and take their supplies. Menelik's army, on the other hand, would forage and live off the land. And historically, as a rule of thumb, the farmers and peasantry were obliged to feed the warriors that were defending the sovereignty of the country. This meant that the Ethiopians were faster and more agile than the Italian armies, who had to set up positions and rely on supply lines for food. Even if there was 100,000 soldiers to feed, they essentially had to fend for themselves and find their own foods. Advantage, Ethiopia. 
Another major blow to Italian arrogance was the fact that they believed African leaders could not strategize effectively in warfare. However, Emperor Menelik proved himself to be a brilliant military strategist, and he proved this when he refused to engage the Italians in Adigrat, where the Italians wanted battle the most since they were fortified in their forts. This was a major rule in military strategy, and that's to never give the enemy battle where they want to fight. Instead, Menelik bypassed the Italians and marched northwest, which not only threatened Baratieri's communication and supply lines, but also threatened the Italian colony of Eritrea itself, which the Italians had worked so hard to establish. Do you know what that means? The Italians were now chasing Menelik's army to prevent the invasion of Eritrea instead of Menelik chasing them, which meant that they had to evacuate Ras Mangisha's lands that they had taken control and occupied just a year before. When General Baratier was pressed by the Italian government to explain why he didn't attack Menelik, he responds by saying, quote, there is a great disproportion in the size of our forces. The enemy is shrewd and his organization has greatly improved since 1888, when Johannes had led a large Ethiopian force into Eritrea, only to turn back, obliging us to exercise maximum prudence in order to take advantage of any error, end quote. And in February 1896, Ethiopian and Italian troops had positioned themselves halfway between Adigrat and Aksum. Menelik's troops were stationed in Gundapta, and Baratieri was in Inticho. Menelik's troops were in a superior position because he spread his forces at the western edge of a massive bowl, giving him plenty of space to deploy his troops. And if Baratieri advanced on him, superior numbers of Ethiopian troops would mean they could hit hard and surround the Italian flanks and envelop the enemy which was a classic Ethiopian battle strategy. Baratiari knew that the Ethiopians had a superior position and wrote back to Rome saying, quote, the enemy occupies a strong position between Inticho and Gundapta, five hours from our camp. Our position is strong, but intricate terrain makes advancing difficult without exposing our flanks, end quote. While the Ethiopians and Italians faced off, an unexpected betrayal occurred that would demoralize and confuse Italy and shift the balance in Ethiopia's favor. The Italians could have never dreamt of conquering Bahr Nagash and turning it into the colony of Eritrea without the Tigrayan nobility siding with them and the recruitment of Eritrean Askari to fight in their colonial army. Two major figures who sided with Italy along with their warriors were Hago Steferi and Ras Sabahat, who joined Italy after falling out with Ras Mangesha. Now, Hago Steferi and Ras Sabahat were Tigray nobility whose families historically ruled the province of Agami and Tigray. When Emperor Johannes was killed in battle and his son and here Ras Mangesha became the ruler of Tigray, he refused to appoint neither Hago Steferi nor Ras Sabahat as the rulers of Agami. Rasman Gesha then invited both rulers to Adwa for a feast. Hagostafari smelled a trap and stayed away. However, Rastavhat accepted the invite and halfway through the feast he was seized, tied up and imprisoned to Amba Alleji. The Italians ended up freeing him in October of 1895. Both Hago Stafari and Rasabhat became eternal enemies of Rasman Gesha and as a result sided with Italy and fought against Rasman Gesha and conquered his territories alongside the Italians. This was a brilliant execution of the divide-and-conquer strategy of the Italians, and they gained valuable allies. This is because Hagostafaris and Rasabhat's warriors knew the land and the terrain of Tigray very well and could guide the Italian troops effectively. 
However, Hagustaf Ferri and Rasifas were opportunists, and after the Italians were defeated at Amba Alleghi and Mekali, they realized that Italians' position wasn't strong anymore and that Minilik's forces were superior in almost every aspect. One of Rasifas' soldiers put it bluntly, saying, quote, The Italians were weak, while Minilik was strong. End quote. At 11 p.m. on February 13th, Hago Stafari, Rasabhat, and their soldiers packed their belongings, including the Italian-issued rifles, and quietly left the Italian camp. They had chosen Ethiopia. They had chosen to fight for the motherland. In the morning, the Italians woke up to find their most trusted Tigran allies had defected and were shocked. Baratieri was absolutely confused and wrote back to Rome saying, quote, Mangasha is their enemy. He gave control of these lands to the others, end quote. What Baratieri didn't understand was that Hagos Teferi and Rasabhat defecting wasn't about Mangasha. It was about realism and understanding that the Italian forces couldn't match the might of Minilik and Ethiopia. When Hagos Teferi and Rasabhat arrived at Minilik's camp, they were hailed as heroes. And when the news of their defection to Ethiopia reached Adigrat, Agami's capital, which was under Italian occupation, the people went crazy and celebrated like never before. And this spelled absolute disaster for Italy, who was an occupying force in the province of Agami, and were now up against a population that was hostile and wanted them out. Now, remember, Ethiopians are fiercely loyal. And now that the historical rulers of the province of Agami had abandoned the Italians and had joined Menelik, the entire population of Agami was in open revolt. And within days of Hagos Teferi and Ras Sabat joining Menelik, their forces tripled as more and more people from Tigray began joining Menelik's army to fight against the occupying Italians. Since Hagos Teferi and Ras Sabat fought alongside the Italians, they knew their positions and battle strategies well, and they wasted no time in beginning to threaten Italian supply lines. And within five days of them defecting, they were threatening the strategic town of Baraket, which was a major position for Italian supply lines. When the Italians would leave Adigrat or their camp in Sauria, they would be decimated by Ethiopians in revolt. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, a reconnaissance mission of 110 Italian soldiers was ambushed and shot up. When a rescue mission of 35 soldiers were sent out to help them, they were intercepted and massacred. On February 16th, Tigrayan troops loyal to Menelik ambushed 100 Italian soldiers in Adigrat, receiving a supply caravan coming from Asmara. The Ethiopians greatly outnumbered them and killed many Italians and captured two commanding officers. The Ethiopians went a step further and stripped the bodies of the Italian soldiers and wore their uniforms. The following day, Ethiopian soldiers came up with a plan to wear the uniforms from the Italians they shot down to lure the Italians into a trap. When a contingent of 140 Italians was sent from Adigrat to rescue their comrades, the Ethiopians wearing the uniforms of the Italians they wiped out the day before acted like colonial troops and ambushed the Italians and decimated them. Now, I know you heard me say this before, but this is something straight out of a movie. Like, imagine wearing your enemy's uniform to lure them into a trap and wipe them out. Absolutely incredible. The Ethiopians were harassing Italian supply lines so effectively, the Italians began to starve. The Italian troops were now rationing flour, coffee, canned meat. By the third week of February, Italian soldiers were only receiving flour, biscuits, and meat only every second day. Hunger now became a major factor and further demoralized Italian troops. Baratieri's army was falling apart piece by piece. Menelik was showing brilliant military strategy and was outmaneuvering the Italians beautifully. 
So what if the Italians had defeated Rasmin Gesha the year before? Remember, power only exists where you can defend it. Italy may have invaded Ethiopia, but the victories over Rasman Gesha meant nothing if they couldn't control Ethiopia. Mark my words and mark them well. No invader of Ethiopia has lived to tell the story. It's one thing to invade, and it's another thing to defend what you occupied. Menelik was teaching the Italians that valuable lesson. So now when we talk about the Battle of Adwa, we often forget to discuss the role of a peasantry. Common farmers, traders, laborers, and Ethiopians of various backgrounds dropped everything to go protect their country. On top of this, the Ethiopian farmers bore the brunt of a war by having to feed over 100,000 soldiers. Now, we often tend to highlight and overemphasize the roles of the commanders in the Battle of Adwa, and rightly so, for the battle would not have been won without their strength or military knowledge. The Ethiopian soldiers traveled light as custom, meaning they lived off the surrounding land. Peasants were by custom forced to provide food to these large armies that often fleeced their land like locusts. This allowed the Ethiopian army to cover lots of ground very quickly, but it also meant that if they stayed in one place too long, the local population would understandably turn hostile as their food stores were depleted. Many Ethiopian peasants also served as informants and scouts. One such example is Atuaulu. The Italians were forced to rely on Ethiopian spies they would pay generously, but the Ethiopians had an extensive intelligence network spread throughout the country, according to Italian journalist Achille Bisoni. In a pretty brilliant move that undoubtedly contributed to the Ethiopian victory, the Ethiopians would feed the Italians false information in regards to their army's morale, the relation of the emperor and his vassals, the size of the armies marching north, etc. And guess what? Through the very spies the Italians were paying for. Oh, and this wasn't all. In a cunning move that kind of reminds me of how Tyrion in Game of Thrones would act, as Aminlik II instructed several of his prominent vassals like Nagusta Klaimont of Gocham, Rasmangasha of Tigray, Rasmakonan of Harar, and many others on February 28th, Generals Elena, Arimondi, Albeton, and Davormido were in favor of an attack rather than the defensive position that General Baratieri, who was in charge of the Italian forces, had adopted. This was because of the reports being fed to them by the local spies, saying that the Ethiopian army was in disarray. Of course, this was only false information being pushed by the Ethiopians on purpose. Later on, when General Arvaton was led astray and reached Adwa, he found that Atuawalo and Gabregzi Kasa, two of the Ethiopian spies hired by the Italians, had already informed Rasmangasha and Rasalula of the Italian advance. This allowed the Ethiopians time to be prepared. The extensive network of spies, particularly double agents developed by Rasalula and managed with the help of Rasmakonan and Itagetaitu, proved to be an invaluable asset to the Ethiopians and contributed heavily to the Ethiopian victory. For our listeners who happen to be Game of Thrones fans, you can think of Rasalula as a cross between Stannis Baratheon, the calculating general, and Varys, the master of spies.
So Francesco Crispi was sending General Baratieri telegrams on the daily now with messages to avenge the military disasters of Amba Alege and Magale. Add to the fact that the generals under Baratieri's command were a constant source of jealousy and resentment. You know, you see, as a young man, General Baratieri fought against the Austrian occupiers to liberate northern Italy. And he was a staunch Italian patriot. And that's how he found his way to Africa to subjugate Ethiopia in the name of the Italian Empire. The generals under his command, in contrast, like General Dabromida, General Albraton, General Aramondi, and General Elena, all came from old Piedmont patrician families in northern Italy. And they had a sense of superiority towards General Bartieri, who was the son of a magistrate and essentially started from the bottom and fought his way to the top. So by mid-February, Rome ran out of patience and dismissed General Baratieri. Crispi wrote a strongly worded telegram saying, quote, small skirmishes in, we, in which we always find ourselves inferior in numbers to the enemy, heroic gestures squandered without success. I don't have any advice to offer because I'm not on the scene. I simply note that your campaign has been conducted without any pre-established plan, and I would like to make one. We are ready for any sacrifice to save the honor of the Italian army and the prestige of the monarchy, end quote. Now, it's strange why Crispy even sent this telegram, because the decision to fire General Baratieri was already made, and his replacement General Baldessera was already on his way from Rome to Eritrea. This telegram particularly, the, conclude, the concluding statement that says, we are ready for any sacrifice to save the honor of the army and the prestige of the monarchy, leaves Baratieri with no room for interpretation. Rome was putting pressure on Baratieri to make a move on Menelik. What's interesting is that Baratieri actually wanted to retreat to Eritrea, where he was closer to his supply lines, where he had more recruits, because at this point, Menelik's army not only destabilized Italian occupation of Tigray, but at this point, they threatened the Italian colony of Eritrea itself. And he knew the Ethiopian soldiers were no joke. And so did the Italian, the Italian colonial soldiers and the Ascari soldiers who had been in Africa for some time already. They respected Ethiopian military prowess, and they knew Ethiopian soldiers were tenacious fighters. So the generals under Baratieri's command did not have the same realistic views or respect in regards to the Ethiopian military strength and they all wanted to attack Menelik, thinking the Ethiopians would scatter and run away at the first signs of battle. So on February 22nd, Menelik withdraws his troops towards Adwa, and John Baratieri opted to mirror his moves and retreat the Italian colonial army north to Debradamo. But his generals and lieutenants criticized him, saying, quote, the enemy flees and we do the same, end quote. Baratieri finally had to call a meeting with all his generals for a real discussion, a real heart to heart on what to do next. He began the war council saying, quote, I haven't asked you to a war council because the responsibility for any decision rests with me. I've asked you to open up your hearts as I would in any ordinary situation of troop movements or maneuvers. I ask you to give me, as is customary, information on the conditions of the troops, end quote. General Dabormida speaks first, saying, quote, never retreat. The soldiers would never understand such a move. Troop morale is very high. A retreat would bring it down, end quote. Dabormida said this was a matter of Italian pride, and Italy would rather accept the loss of soldiers fighting than retreating from an en enemy they've been standing off against for three months. 
General Alberton backed General Dabormida saying he had reliable information that half of Menelik's forces were retreating south and that Menelik's generals were divided amongst themselves. Now, bear in mind that this was information Menelik's agents were feeding the Italians to make them think the Ethiopian army was falling apart. It was a brilliant form of disinformation using double agents who infiltrated the Italian army working for Menelik. General Aramondi was the biggest critic of General Baratieri and would not hear anything about retreating. Arimondi claimed the Italians had better arms, more ammunition, better marksmanship, better leadership, superior valor, more disciplined firepower, and all of this would make up for the fact that the Italians had smaller numbers than the Ethiopians. General Elena only joined their forces two weeks ago and said he wasn't in a position to offer an opinion and said he deferred to the judgment of the other generals who favored attacking the Ethiopians instead of retreating. General Bateri was outnumbered by the generals he commanded, and they were becoming insubordinate on the daily. They hated his leadership and saw him as weak. He had little option but to change his strategy from a strategic retreat, which was actually very intelligent, to now attacking Menelik's army. General Baratieri closed the meeting saying, quote, the enemy is valiant and despises death, end quote. The Italian army would move against Menelik for a decisive showdown. It was now or never. It was do or die. Ethiopia is considered one of the most mountainous countries in the world, so much so that Ethiopia was dubbed Africa Switzerland by Europeans. Our nation is home to approximately 80% of the mountains on the continent of Africa, the majority of which are located in the northern part of the country in Gondar and Tigray. Much of Ethiopia exists 6,500 feet above sea level, and the high elevations and jagged terrain means Ethiopia has bred strong people, particularly the highland populations. Now, you might ask yourself, why is that important? This type of environment and terrain is one of the main reasons why Ethiopia has never been conquered. It provides a natural fortress to any invading enemy, particularly when the people of Ethiopia have lived, worked, fought, and existed within these conditions for millennia, giving them a unique history and a unique advantage when facing enemies who seek to subjugate and colonize the country. As you head west in Tigray, three major mountain peaks stand out to anyone who visits. They are known as Ishasho, Rayo, and Samaita. Back home, these three peaks are known as the Three Generals. When I was in Ethiopia in 2013, I went to the north of our country and I saw these three peaks for myself. And I truly understood why they were known as the three generals of Ethiopia. They stood at the border of Eritrea. And to me, they represented silent, natural defenders of our country. A formidable warning to all who dare invade our country that not only will the strong people of Ethiopia defend our nation, but so too will the natural terrain of the country itself. They were beautiful. General Baratieri's battle strategy was to advance the Italian army in three columns. General Dabormida would head the right column and would occupy the space between the mountain peaks of Ishasho and Rayo. General Albertone would command the left column brigade and occupy the peaks between the southern pass between the peaks of Rayo and Samayata. Finally, General Aramondi's third column would occupy the army's center on the western flanks of Rayo. Baratieri planned to have the Italian army move at night and surprise the Ethiopians in the morning before they could prepare for battle. And since they would occupy a strong position between the three mountain peaks, they could funnel the massive Ethiopian army between the narrow passes where their advantages and numbers wouldn't mean anything in such a confined space. And Italian firepower could wreak havoc on Menelik soldiers. 
So at 9.45 p.m. on February 28, 1896, the orders were given by General Baratieri to move out and execute the surprise attack. The entire Italian army was now on the move to finally engage Menelik's army in battle. The Italians, Italians described that night as being clear and enchanting. There was a full moon and the stars dotted the night sky. Giovanni Gamera, who was commanding a battalion of Eritrean Ascari, recalls that it was the most beautiful night he had ever seen. The Italians took every precaution. They marched without bayonets fixed to their rifles to prevent the shine from the moonlight reflecting off the steel from being seen by the Ethiopians. They weren't even allowed to smoke just in case the light from a lit cigarette tipped off the Ethiopians. They marched all night loaded down with heavy packs on their backs, a rifle on their shoulders, an ammunition belt on their left hip, and a water canteen on their right moving through the harsh mountain terrain of Ethiopia. Now this is important because a march like this would leave any army extremely exhausted. General Albertone had some of the best soldiers in the Ital Italian army, particularly the four all Ascari battalions who are known for their incredible speed and were leading the advance. Baratieri knew that for this surprise attack at night to work, coordination was absolutely vital. And the speed at which the Ascari moved was a problem if they went too far ahead of the rest of the Italian army. He also knew General Albertone was reckless and giving him command of such a speedy unit of soldiers could be a recipe for disaster. On the night of the advance, General Albertone's advance guard that was leading the column was headed by Major Domenico Torito, who commanded the first native battalion of Ascari soldiers, who ended up covering 10 miles under three hours, which is an insane amount of land to cover in such a short time span. By 3.30 a.m., on March 1st, Torito was already at the pass between Rayo and Samayata, which was the battle strategy, and that's what it called for. He was supposed to get there and get ready to attack the Ethiopians and wait for the rest of the Italian army to get into position. One problem, though, and I'm sure you could all guess. By the time General Albertone got to Torito's position, he asked him why he stopped short of the destination. Torito responds and says he was in the right position already. Albertone couldn't believe how fast the Ascari unit was able to get there and told Torito that he was wrong and the position between Rayo and Samayata was further ahead and to keep moving. Albertone yells at him and says, quote, go ahead. I don't want any hesitation. Then he taunts him by saying, quote, you're not afraid, are you? End quote. Torito couldn't let himself look like a coward, so he gathers his troops and moves out and goes forwards past the position he was actually supposed to be at. Major Torito and General Albertone were now moving down towards the plains of Adwa with 4,000 Eritrean troops shooting past the position they were supposed to be at. And essentially, they were about to walk in blind into the middle of the Ethiopian camp. When I say God protects and watches Ethiopia, this is what I mean. Forever will God watch over Ethiopia because this mistake would cost the Italians everything. Because General Albertone essentially overshoots his position and compre compromises the entire battle plan that General Baratieri had come up with. It was 5.30 a.m. on March 1st, 1896. And dawn began to break and light slowly began to show on the Ethiopian skies. Major Torito had 950 Eritrean soldiers under his command who had been marching all night long. Had the day been a little brighter, they could have been able to make out the thousands upon thousands of tents of the Ethiopian camp on the plains of Adwa. 
instead in the dim light of the morning Torito's Askari battalion walked head first into the Ethiopian camp the Ethiopians were startled and sent off warning shots and surprise it was a little after six in the morning on March 1st 1896 arguably the most historical day in Ethiopian history the Battle of Adwa had officially begun. An unknown Ethiopian eyewitness account describes Minilikant Aitu being in church when the news of the Italian advance reached them. According to the eyewitness, a messenger found the royal couple deep in prayer around four in the morning. The messenger leaned in and whispered to Minilik that the Italians were on their way, and in a gesture of deep Orthodox faith, Minilik finished the church service. When the church service was over, the horn sounded and Minilikant Aitu prepared for battle. By 5.30 a.m., the entire Ethiopian army, 100,000 warriors, were ready for battle. The clergy of Aksum were also with Minilikant Aitu that day, and with them they carried the Tabot of Mariam and St. George into battle. Add that to the fact that March 1st was the feast day of St. George. The Ethiopians believed that this was a divine intervention and that God was on their side. When Major Torito and his forces walked into the Ethiopian camp, they were immediately engaged with Rasman Gesha's warriors, and Empress Aitu had 5,000 soldiers commanded by Balcha Safo nearby, who quickly engaged with the Italians. King Taklaimanut of Gujam had 4,000 Gujami warriors nearby, and Ras Welli Aitu's brother also had another 10,000 soldiers in proximity. Minilik himself had 35,000 troops in the valley below the slopes of Shaloda. In Amharic, they say, which translates to, when a mouse wants to die, it smells a cat's nose. And this captured perfectly the monster of an army that Torito's forces stumbled upon and that quickly engaged in battle with the Italians. Within 30 minutes, Torito's troops were held in place and the Ethiopians had almost encircled them entirely. And since Torito's troops were so far ahead of General Albertones, they couldn't communicate what was happening. Alberton, on the other hand, arranged his troops between two mountains, which he believed were too steep for the Ethiopians to climb. It was a very well-chosen position in the sense that Ethiopian troops would have to travel through an open field to get to him, and in that field, they would be exposed to Italian rifle fire and artillery without anything to cover them. Minilik ordered soldiers on the opposite side of Alberton between two large hills, which protected the Ethiopian flanks. This was exactly the battle Minilik wanted. Two armies engaging in the open where Ethiopian numbers and fighting tenacity could be used to its maximum advantage. This was the battle for the future of Ethiopia. This was the battle that would inspire millions upon millions in Africa and around the globe to fight for their freedom. The irony of the initial scene where the Ethiopians were engaging Major Torito and General Albertone in battle was the fact that it was Africans fighting other Africans. What we mean by that is that General Alberton commanded four native battalions, which was composed of about 4,000 Eritrean Askari fighting on the side of Italy. The opening shots of the Battle of Adwa were Eritreans fighting for Italy to colonize Ethiopia. Africans were fighting other Africans, and this is the classic story of colonization on the entire continent. Ethiopia was no exception. The only difference was that on the Ethiopian side, Africans were being commanded by Africans. African kings and nobility, whereas on the Italian side, Africans were being commanded by white people. This was a visual representation of what the Battle of Adwa was going to determine. Would Ethiopia have a future where black people were being led and commanded by white people? Or would Ethiopia have a future where black people were led by other black leaders from their own country? Let's see how the battle turns out.
The Ethiopian forces, including Menelik's imperial guard, ran into the valley at full speed towards Italians. The Italians had 14 artillery guns set up and ready and opened fire at a range of 5,000 feet. This was the battle for the future of Ethiopia. This was the battle that would inspire millions upon millions in Africa and around the globe to fight for their freedom. The initial Ethiopian charge was driven back, but the Ethiopian side had strength in numbers, which meant that each time one warrior fell, another wave of soldiers would rush forward ready to fight and die. To me, this is profound. These soldiers were farmers, everyday people who picked up their rifles to fight and die for their homeland. Sometimes you had entire families, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, uncles and aunts on the battlefield. Imagine yourself surging forward and seeing your father or brother or cousin fall from the Italian rifle fire, but you have no time to grieve, you have no time to mourn. You can only push forward and either destroy the enemy who came to enslave your country and people, or die on the battlefield for the defense of your country. I don't think we realize the gravity of the sacrifice our ancestors paid for us to proudly say we were never colonized. This is what it took. This is it right here, and you should never ever forget it. Empress Taitu was commanding her unit of 5,000 soldiers and was shouting praise and encouragement to her troops. As an Ethiopian chronicler put it, she approached her soldiers on foot and pulled aside her veil to speak to them, which shocked and motivated her warrior. The Empress yelled, quote, What is going on? Courage! Victory is ours! End quote. This shocked her soldiers because seeing an empress go barefoot and unveiled in Ethiopian customs is out of the norm, and this motivated and encouraged them to fight harder than ever. As the Ethiopian wave of warriors advanced on the Italians who continued their artillery assault, Ethiopian sharpshooters using the rapid-fire Hotchkiss artillery battery were firing on Albertone's men and were proving to be very effective. Emperor Menelik himself was commanding this unit to inspire and encourage the artillery men. As Ethiopian artillery was hitting its mark and found its range, Ras Makonen, Menelik's cousin, and Ras Mikhail of Wadlo ordered 15,000 men to attack Albertone's right and King Taklahaimanot of Gojam and Wangshum Gangul, the ruler of the province of Lasta, along with Empress Taitu, hit Albertone's forces on the left in a sweeping arc. This was the classic envelopment strategy of Ethiopian military, where they engulfed your troops from both sides to the point that they eventually surrounded the enemy. This forced the Italians to spread their firepower in a wide arc, and that reduced how effective they were and allowed the Ethiopians pushing from the middle across the valley to get closer and closer without being hit. When General Baratieri arrived at his position and saw Albertone's brigade engage in a fight for survival with Menelik's army, he knew the situation was getting bad and Albertone needed help to pull his troops out alive. The solution was to send General Dabor Mida's brigade to provide support directly behind and to the right of General Alberton. That way, he could provide cover and fire on the advancing Ethiopians while General Alberton's men retreated. Now, what happens next is one of the greatest mysteries of the Battle of Adwa. General Dabor Mida heads west towards Adwa in order to get into position behind General Alberton's troops and provide cover according to the battle plan. 
But a few miles west, the road splits into two directions. And instead of going left towards Alberton's men to back them up, he goes right towards a valley called Mariam Shavitu, where his brigade is useless and can't provide any type of support to General Alberton. This crucial miscalculation and the incompetence by General Dabromida was the monkey wrench in their entire battle strategy. On March 1st, at 9 a.m., General Alberton finally sends word to General Baratieri saying, quote, At Kidana Murat Pass, the 1st Battalion remains seriously engaged. I have all remaining troops in position behind them. I seek to disengage the 1st Battalion. Large enemy force before me. Reinforcements would be welcome. Signed, Gen- Major General Alberton. This message is shocking when you analyze the facts on the ground. General Albertone makes it seem like things were going as planned and they hadn't sustained any heavy damage and that it's just Major Torito's men that led the advance guard that were engaged when in reality, at the time Albertone sends his message, Torito's entire unit that walked into the Ethiopian camp was completely destroyed by the Ethiopians. Major Torito was also killed along with his troops. A few minutes later, General Alberton sends another message to Baratieri saying, quote, Kidana Murat was occupied without the enemy's knowledge at 6 a.m., end quote. Hold up. What? Kidana Murat was occupied without the enemy's knowledge? I, I actually think General Alberton was delusional to a certain extent because this is an absolute lie. Major Torito had walked into the Ethiopian camp and alerted the entire Ethiopian army that the Italians were advancing. And at the time this message was sent, Major Torito's soul had literally left his body. The Ethiopians had wiped him and his advance guard out and were moving on General Albertone's brigade. Albertone's message continues to say, quote, the enemy is all around Adwa and behind Mariam Shavitu. The 1st Battalion pushed beyond the pass and is energetically engaged. The 6th Battalion occupies a strong high ground on the right. The other two battalions are grouped with the artillery. I can foresee a serious engagement. Move up the Aramandi Brigade and reinforcement. It would be quite opportune to move up the Dabormida Brigade, which would draw to itself a part of the enemy's forces, end quote. Bear in mind that General Baratieri is General Albertone's commander, and he's in the middle of a vicious battle writing things like, move up the Aramandi Brigade essentially giving orders to his superior as if he's taken control of the battle strategy. It just shows you how deep the jealousy and animosity between the commanding Italian generals was. General Albertone's forces were viciously engaged by Menelik's warriors. And what that meant was that General Aramondi and General Baratieri himself couldn't move their troops up to cover them. What does this mean for Menelik and his 100,000 Ethiopians? It means that the Ethiopian army could now destroy the Italians piece by piece in three separate waves since they couldn't move forward and back each other up without risking the destruction of their entire army at once. Now, if we shift the story to General Dabormida, remember him? The guy who went right instead of left and is in the middle of nowhere, completely useless and isolated. He writes to General Baratieri saying, quote, our 915, extensive Ethiopian encampment absorbed North of Adwa, a strong column heads from this encampment toward Alberton's position. I am reaching to Alberton, and I'm also holding a strong nucleus of troops amassed near the road that leads from the pass to Adwa, and I'm also keeping watch on the heights to my right. 
end quote. Look, I hate to break it to you, General Dabormida, that strong column of Ethiopians you described heading towards Albertone is about to annihilate all your homies, the brigade you were sent to cover and essentially rescue. I hate to also break it to you, but Menelik knows exactly where you are, and that's isolated, alone in a valley where you're useless and irrelevant in the entire battle. The Ethiopians didn't forget about you. In fact, they were saving you for last Instead of confronting Dabormida, all Melanik did was sent 15,000 troops in the space between Dabormida's brigade and Albertone's brigade. This was the, quote, strong column Dabormida was talking about when he wrote this message to General Baratieri. Do you know what that meant? Menelik essentially saw a gap and put his own troops in between the Italian, Italian defense, which divided the Italian army into th- three hopeless and isolated pieces. What Emperor Menelik did was use one of the most essential battle strategies, and that was to divide your enemy's forces. Sun Tzu says, if their forces are united, then separate them. And when Menelik moved his warriors in between that gap, he did exactly that. By 930, the strong column of Ethiopian soldiers that moved into that gap were commanded by Ras Makonan of Shoah and Ras Mangisha of Tigray. One part of the column was attacking Albertone's right flank, and the other part of the column moved forwards ahead of General Albertone and towards General Baratieri himself and his main brigade. Albertone was facing off against Menelik and Taitu. Dabormida was occupying the valley at Mariam Shavitu, and General Baratieri was at the passes between the three mount- mountain peaks, Ishasho, Rayo, and Samayata. Remember those? Fighting would continue into the afternoon. However, the fact that Menelik shot the gap and moved his troops between the Italian army and divided them meant that Menelik had won the Battle of Adwa. And by 9.30 a.m. on March 1st, 1896, Ethiopia was victorious. General Baratieri was now scrambling to save his army from being decimated by the advancing Ethiopians. And so he ordered General Arimondi's brigade to occupy the passes on the flanks of Mount Rayo, which was not a very strategic location because Arimondi's troops couldn't deploy their artillery effectively at all since the terrain was narrow and steep. At 9 a.m., General Arimondi sees African troops running to his position. At first, he thought they were Ethiopians. But when they got closer, he realized they were Eritrean Ascari from General Albertone's brigade, and they were in full retreat. You see, when Ethiopian sharpshooters were engaging General Albertone's brigade, they didn't, tar- they didn't target the Eritrean Ascari. They specifically targeted the white Italian commanders. Why, you may ask? Simple. Take the head and the creature dies. The Italian officers were the first to be killed by the Ethiopian riflemen. At 10 a.m., or Ernesto Cordella, an Italian artillery lieutenant, recalls seeing hundreds of multicolored green, yellow, red flags accompanied by beating drums and thousands of Ethiopians energized for battle. For the Ethiopians, engaging in battle was an absolutely joyful experience where they knew their superior numbers would overwhelm the Italians. The Italian soldiers, on the other hand, were absolutely demoralized because the amount of Ethiopian soldiers appeared limitless. When one Ethiopian fell, a dozen would take their place. Unpack that for a second. Imagine it. You see your countrymen falling in battle next to you, in front of you, but you know that victory is close, so you keep pushing and you keep firing, taking out Italians and Ascari. You persevere against all odds. I think 
This shows the fighting spirit of Ethiopians and the desire to protect our country and people no matter the sacrifice. The Ethiopian army had completely surrounded General Alberton's brigade. Menlik's riflemen were now firing on the Italian position from the front, from the sides, from the high ground, and even from behind them. By 11 a.m., General Alberton's brigade was destroyed. Cordello was taken prisoner, along with General Alberton himself, who was wounded, surrounded, and captured. The retreat of Alberton's brigade was uncoordinated as well, since the Ethiopians deliberately targeted Italian commanders. They knew that the Eritrean Ascari would have no guidance whatsoever, leading to mass confusion. The destruction of Alberton's brigade was a huge morale booster for the Ethiopians, but it didn't stop them from advancing. They knew that the remainder of the Italian army was still left. But let's take a second to acknowledge that the Italian fire ended the life of many, many Ethiopians. Now, hear my words now. It will never be known exactly how many Ethiopians died at the Battle of Adwa. The bodies were never counted. As Alberton's troops were in full retreat, the Ethiopians were chasing them at full speed. This was devastating for the rest of the Italian army because that meant that they couldn't fire at the Ethiopians because they were so close to the Italian and the Eritrean troops in retreat and would risk hitting their own men. This was equally devastating because that meant the Ethiopian troops could get close to the remainder of the Italian army without being fired upon. The Ethiopians also began climbing up a huge hill called Zaban Daro, which was opposite General Aramandi's forces at Rayo. This hill was extremely strategic, but remember, the Italians ignored it because they believed the Ethiopians could never climb it since it was so steep. Guess again, the Ethiopians, barefoot and relentless, climb up this steep hill, and although the Italians tried to chase after them, the Ethiopians reached the top first and rained a storm of bullets on the Italians. In fact, eyewitnesses say only 40 Italians managed to get to the top of the hill and were massacred. The first Italian to reach the top caught a bullet straight to the face from an Ethiopian sharpshooter. Within 20 minutes, Ethiopians shooting from Zabandaro killed half the white Italian commanding officers. Giovanni Tadone, a sergeant in the Italian army, recounts that the Italian commanding officers made perfect targets for the Ethiopians because they wore bright red and blue sashes that essentially gave away the fact that they were officers to the Ethiopian marksmen who were more than happy to put a bullet in them. Out of 610 Italian officers at Adwa, only 258 made it out. 58% of Italian commanding officers never made it out of the lion's den. As Ethiopians fell in battle, more would take their place immediately. The Italians in, the, in that moment remembered what Baratieri had said before the battle. And that was, quote, the Ethiopians despised death. And in that moment, they understood why. Colonel Stevani, in the middle of the battle, yells, quote, Today is a second Dogali, end quote. They were being massacred piece by piece, and they knew it. Giovanni Tadone later describes their situation as, quote, it was no longer a fight, but a slaughterhouse, end quote. By 11 a.m., the Ethiopian army had occupied positions behind the entire Italian army and was seeking to control the northern pass at Mount Ishasho. General Baratieri knew if that happened and the Ethiopian army encircled them, they would not be able to retreat and thousands would die. General Baratieri ordered the Italian flag to be drawn out and he yells, quote, Viva Italia, end quote. That was the signal for the entire army, the, the entire Italian army to retreat 
and it was officially sounded. The Italians who had marched all night to surprise the Ethiopians were exhausted, hungry, and sleep deprived. And now they had to find enough strength to run away from the Ethiopians who could taste victory and were chasing them down at full speed. Now, whatever happened to our old friend, General Dabormida? Remember the guy who went right instead of left and was sitting in a valley somewhere completely isolated and irrelevant to the entire battle? See, Dabormida was an Italian nobleman and his family was very important back home in Italy. And naturally, he tolerated zero nonsense and his troops knew not to question him. His men knew something was wrong. They saw fighting happening in the distance and they knew they were isolated and the Ethiopians were ignoring them entirely. The Eritrean Ascari under his command, after seeing the massive Ethiopian army and realizing how isolated their brigade was, finally got the courage to ask one question. And I quote, are the white troops coming? End quote. No, Antemiskin, the white troops are running away at full speed, and I highly suggest you do the same. What Dabormida was hoping would happen is that the Ethiopian troops would be divided as they would split their army, where one part would be fighting Dabormida's brigade, and the other would be fighting the other brigades under the command of the other generals. But he severely miscalculated and underestimated Mendelik's military prowess. Instead of engaging him, Mendelik kept Dabormida's forces pinned down in place so they could deal with the bulk of the Italian army and then come back to wipe him out at the end. Mendelik had 100,000 soldiers at his command. So he had more than enough warriors to hold Dabormida down while wiping out the entire, the other generals. Around 1 p.m., the battlefield was quiet. Some of Dabormida's soldiers actually thought they had won the Battle of Adwa and started running around shooting their rifles in the air, screaming, victory, long live the king, viva Italia. <laughs> Save your bullets. Don't be, don't be shooting guns in the air. Wait, what, wait and see what happens next. General Dabormira didn't know this, but his commander-in-chief, General Baratieri, was in full retreat at that time and on his way back to Eritrea. And the Ethiopians were loading up their ammunition, consolidating their position to his left and to his right and to the center, ready to annihilate the last of the Italian army, who they saved for last. It's like dessert. After a heavy meal, you save the sweetest part of your meal for last. And to Menelik's soldiers, Dabormida's brigade alone, isolated, with no other Italian troops left to come to their rescue, looked like caramella, some gelato. So the Ethiopians advanced into position and began taking cover behind bushes and other elements on the battlefield. The Italian soldiers complained that they couldn't even see the Ethiopians because their brown skin camouflaged with the landscape of Adwa. I love that. Even nature was on Ethiopia's side that day. Italians who survived reported that Ethiopian gunfire surrounded them. And since the Ethiopians used smokeless gunpowder, they couldn't even see where the shots were coming from. Now, as Ethiopians got closer and closer, Dabormida commanded Colonel Aragai to lead the bayonet charges against the Ethiopians. The Ethiopians simply stepped aside and let the Ita Italian troops pass right through and open fire at close range. The results were devastating. Italian casualties were horrific. General Dabormida was now surrounded, and the Italians and Ethiopians were now fighting in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Basha Gabre 
a soldier in Menelik's army, remembers closing in on the old man, as he describes Dabromida. Dabromida used his revolver to shoot three of Gabre's comrades. And when he turned to fire at Gabre, Gabre ducked behind a tree. Gabre then jumped out and shot Dabromida through his chest and out his side. Dabromida had once said that he would prefer to die in battle. Basha Gabre gave him his wish. General Dabromida's body was stripped of his clothes and his white-handled saber was one of the greatest trophies of the day. And Basha Gabre would later present it to Menelik as a gift. One stark difference between the Italian troops and the Ethiopian troops is what they were fighting for. The Italians were fighting to carve out their piece of Africa and gain an Italian East African colony and essentially enslave and dominate Ethiopians. The Ethiopians, in contrast, were fighting for their land, their country, and their future as a sovereign and independent nation. While the Italian soldiers and the Eritrean Ascari were paid a wage for their services, the Ethiopians and Menelik's army volunteered and risked their lives for their country. That being said, soldiers still needed to get paid. Soldiers still expected to get paid in some way, and the Ethiopians were no exception. And that's exactly why they pursued the retreating Italians with such ferocity, because they knew that their payments would be found in the enemy soldiers they captured or killed. The Italian soldiers knew their fate. They would be stripped of all their clothes and possessions, and the Ethiopians would take trophies. One thing that struck absolute fear into the hearts of the Italians were the legendary Oromo cavalry. Oromo horsemen were mounted infantrymen, which meant they could ride into battle on horseback, dismount, and start shooting. Oromo horsemen became infamous throughout Europe as stories of their bravery and relentless fighting spirit in battle shook the colonists to their core. The Italians had no cavalry, and that meant that the Oromo wearing their lion's mane headdresses could pursue them with unbelievable speed, and they operated with, quote, grim efficiency. And this demoralized the Italians who were running away as fast as they could. You see, the Oromo traditionally were known to castrate their victims and take the defeated enemy's male parts as a trophy, as proof that they not only defeated their enemy in battle, but that they had taken the enemy's ability to reproduce and have children, and, uh, and thus this would destroy their lineage. Now, Francesco Frisnia witnessed a wounded and unarmed Italian light a final cigarette and jump off a high mountain peak and kill himself. As the Oromo horsemen surrounded the Italians, Tadone watched his superior lieutenant, Garibaldi Penazzi, shoot himself in, into his chest. The wound didn't even kill him. So Lieutenant Penazzi sat up again and fired, and he laid dead at Tadone's feet. Tadone was surrounded by the Oromo and was stabbed repeatedly. His battle was over. Captain Palumbo was exhausted, and he simply sat down and pointed his gun at the Ethiopians closing in and waited to die. This captures the desperation and hopelessness of the Italian position at this time during their retreat. At Adwa, the Ethiopians stripped the enemy's bodies completely and took everything of value. Now, you all might think of this as barbaric. However, take the context into mind, like everything in Ethiopian history. Our ancestors volunteered to fight for their country and motherland. And the only form of payment was stripping the bodies of their enemy. 
Stripping bodies on warfare is an age-old practice, and Ethiopia was no exception. Armies on the move carried their wealth with them, and thus the Ethiopians would find coins, cash, and other valuables among the dead, and pieces of their clothing could be worn or traded. This would be the only source of income for the Ethiopian soldiers. This is how they got paid. So as night fell on Adwa, the Italian soldiers who had survived recounted seeing bodies mutilated in the moonlight. Giovanni Tadone recounts seeing a fellow Italian soldiers laying naked, stripped completely, call out to him by name. Tadone saw that his countrymen had been emasculated and his genitals were taken as a trophy by the Ethiopians. Ethiopians, like I mentioned before, took trophies as a symbolic gesture and proof that they had defeated their enemy. Castration of the enemy was one of the, quote, barbaric practices of the Ethiopians that the Europeans used as justification to colonize Ethiopia and civilize its people. You see, Ethiopians in general have a strong warrior culture. And in the military context, this warrior culture would have many symbolic manifestations. For example, one way that Ethiopians showed their prowess as fighters and killers was by braiding their hair. The more braids you had, the more men you killed in battle. Augustus Wilde recalls meeting an Ethiopian warrior named Asadlefe Hailu after the Battle of Adwa and explains that Hailu's hair was, quote, plated in strands which were tied together at the back of his head like that of all Abyssinians who have killed their man, end quote. So too did the practice of emasculating your fallen enemy and taking the scrotum as a trophy because braiding one's hair could be a bluff and anyone can claim to have killed during battle. However, a trophy from your victim was actual proof that you killed the man and dominated them physically. This isn't uncommon in other cultures. For example, Native Americans would scalp their victims and some warring peoples would take a finger as proof. Thus, Ethiopians castrating their enemy falls into this category as well. However, what sets a scrotum apart was that it could have only come from a man. And on that same note, it meant that your enemy, if they survived, could no longer reproduce. And that puts an end to their lineage. This not only takes a toll on the man, but on a people as a whole. This wasn't unheard of in Europe either. For example, during the gunpowder plot of 1605 in England, the man responsible who attempted to blow up parliament and the king along with it was castrated as he was deemed unfit to reproduce. And in France, during the religious wars, the Protestant admiral Gaspard de Coligny was killed and castrated as well. Also in France, Heloise's lover Abelard was castrated by her uncle to punish him for seducing his niece. Some Ethiopians at that time also justified castration by referencing the Bible, saying that David won the respect of King Saul with such acts against the Philistines in Samuel 1, 18, 27, where David slayed 200 Philistines and took their foreskins. Giovanni Tedon recalls that Ras Mikael, the head of the Oromo cavalry, as being, quote, the head of the emasculators, end quote. Alberto Walked praises the Oromo horsemen, saying they were, quote, bold, beautiful warriors, and stupendous horsemen who loved war for war's sake, end quote. The Italians would recount that some Oromo would de decorate their horses with the trophies that they captured in war to intimidate their enemy. And this did exactly that. The Italians would be demoralized before they even started fighting because they knew that the same fate would fall on them if they lost. And that's exactly what happened. Menelik's soldiers were clear in explaining why they emasculated their victims, saying, this is how they put a stop to the enemy from reproducing. On the eve of Adwa, 
Menelik announced to his troops saying, quote, bring me the man, not the testicles, end quote. This meant that Menelik knew the prisoners were valuable and wanted them largely unhurt. Despite his proclamation, his warriors ignored his instructions because the practice was so deeply rooted in Ethiopian military culture. It was estimated that 7% of the surviving Italians from the Battle of Adwa were castrated. After the victory at Adwa was a night of celebration. Edge flowed, tall bonfires were lit, and warriors all around were recounting the events of the battle and their heroics. Many soldiers wept for the death of their loved ones. Yes, Ethiopia had emerged victorious, but many of our people lost brothers, sisters, husbands, fathers, cousins, and the emotions were heavy that night. One thing remained true. Ethiopia had won a spectacular victory and secured sovereignty of nation and people. And all claims to Ethiopian territory by the Italians had been utterly destroyed along with their army. Hundreds of Italians who came to conquer Ethiopians now found themselves prisoners of the Ethiopians themselves. Dioti was a corporal who fought in Dabormita's brigade and recalls coming face to face with the Ethiopian women who lost their husbands in the battle and they would let out their rage at the Italian prisoners. You see, when Ethiopians went to war, their wives and their children would come with them to support them during the conflicts. And this was unheard of in Europe at the time. Diodi also recalls seeing the sheer magnitude of the Ethiopian army, could not believe the thousands of warriors that marched in Menelik's army. On March 3rd, the Italians were brought before Emperor Menelik. To Europeans, he had become a myth. To Ethiopians, he was a legend. The man who had engineered modern Africa's greatest victory, Menelik was 49 years old at the time. The greatest challenge Menelik now faced was what to do with all his prisoners. At a rough estimate, Menelik now had 1,900 Italian prisoners and 1,500 Eritrean Ascari prisoners. By Ethiopian custom, prisoners of war were at the mercy of their captors. However, Menelik did not want slaughter. That being said, Menelik came under serious pressure from his inner circle and his generals. His wife, Empress Taitu, and Ras Mangesha in particular, believed that the Italian soldiers should die and the Eritrean Ascari should be punished. Ras Makonen, King Taklahaimanot of Godjam, and Ras Mikhail of Wello all opted for moderation. In the end, Menelik ruled that the Italians should not be harmed in any way. And the reason was brilliant. Menelik realized that the Italian prisoners were more valuable to him alive than dead, and that he could use the sons of Italy as a powerful negotiation piece when declaring his demands to Italy, which he knew they would agree to since he had 1,900 Italians at his mercy. He also knew that Italy would pay a huge amount to have them return safely, and that's money Menelik could use to develop his country and rehabilitate the devastation the wars had caused in Ethiopia. The fate of the Eritrean Ascari who fought for Italy 
would not be so kind. They held zero redemption value. Rasman Geshav Tigray in particular had a deep-seated hate for the Askari who he blamed for the Italian victories against his army just a year before and what cost him so much of his territory in what became the Italian colony of Eritrea. Without the Askari fighting for Italy, Rasman Geshav wouldn't have been defeated at Koatit and Sanafe. And Italy would not have been as successful in the Horn of Africa and aggressing against Ethiopia. By all accounts that night, Menelik advocated for forgiveness. However, Empress Taitu, Ras Mangesha, Ras Alula, and even Abu Namatius, the Orthodox Patriarch, advocated that the Eritrean Ascari needed to be punished. You see, before the Ascari decided to fight for Italy, they were Ethiopians. And there was a deep sense of betrayal felt by Ethiopia that they would side with the Europeans against their own country. Ras Alula put it bluntly to an Ascari prisoner saying, quote, you are Ethiopian, you have a Nugus, you have an emperor, and yet you have sought another in the king of Italy. You are fighting against your own brothers. For that, I will punish you and cut off your hands, end quote. The Ascari were judged as traitors to their country and people. And according to the Fatah Nugus, the law of the kings, which governed Ethiopian society, their lives would be spared. However, they would lose their right hand and their left foot. They would never fight or betray again. No doubt this was a very harsh and severe punishment. And those of us looking at this event from the 21st century see this as horrific. However, we must always take into the context of the time period and the laws that governed Ethiopia at that time. And this was the punishment for treason. The Ascari who fought on the side of Italy knew this well. And this would later sour relationships between Ethiopians and Eritreans in the future. It's also important to note that Ascari who defected and joined Menelik were subject to European punishment as well. In one case, when an Ascari who survived Amba Alage and defected and joined the resistance against the Italians was discovered in Makale by the Italians, he was tried and executed immediately. Although it was the northern nobility, Empress Taitu, Ras Mangesha, and Ras Alula, who had lost land to the Italians and were bitter and pressured Menelik to hand out the most severe punishment to the Ascari, ultimately, the decision and responsibility fell on Menelik regardless, and this would be his worst decision in the aftermath of Adwa. When a British journalist asked him about the decision, Emperor Menelik replied saying, quote, have you heard what they did? They had committed sacrilege. They looted churches, sacked villages and towns, stolen cattle, and killed my subjects. They were treated as thieves and received the punishment of thieves. Tell this in England. End quote. Although he decimated the bulk of the Italian army, there were still fresh recruits arriving at Masawa daily, and he knew the Italians would be out for revenge. So he knew his most valuable asset at the time was the 1,900 Italian prisoners he had captured, which he knew he could use as a shield to prevent the Italians from trying to ever invade Ethiopia again. And furthermore, the Italians would be forced to accept Menelik's demands that outlined Ethiopia as a sovereign state free from any European control. Menelik also had 1,900 Italian prisoners for the entire world to see what a disaster the Battle of Adwa was for the Italians. Menelik divided up the Italian prisoners into groups of 50 or 100 and gave them to his generals and lieutenants to take care and guard until negotiations could begin. A group of 800 prisoners personally were kept under Menelik's care. The Italians that were badly wounded were left in the north under the care of Ras Mangeshav Tigray. 
high-ranking Italian commanders were paired up with Ethiopian commanders and lieutenants. For example, King Takrahamano took custody of Major Giovanni Gamera, and Menelik's Minister of Justice took care of Lieutenant Gerardo Pintano. Menelik proclaimed to his chief, saying, quote, bring them back to me alive, end quote. The Italians that were marched back to Addis Ababa as prisoners experienced a world where blacks were in control of whites, which completely contradicted the world they came from. For example, when Menelik's army would stop for water, the Ethiopians would drink first, then the animals would drink, and finally the Italian prisoners would drink last. This march back to Addis Ababa also gave an opportunity for Ethiopians and Italians to finally meet face-to-face outside of the context of war, and this allowed them to humanize one another. Ethiopians would entertain themselves by teaching the Italians words in Amharic and laugh when the Italians tried to repeat them. Menelik turned the Italian prisoners into laborers, turning them into road construction workers, carpenters, blacksmiths. Menelik had 24 Italian prisoners personally who had special skills work on his imperial compound. Groups of Italian prisoners in Menelik's compound created like a furniture shop where they made tables, stools, and chairs. Italian prisoners also established a tailor shop where they would work on sewing machines to make clothes for the emperor. In Italy, the response to Italian defeat at Adwa was at a fever pitch of resistance against the Italian government's colonial ambitions in Africa. Italian citizens began to riot to resist government recruitment to fight in Ethiopia. The Italian public wanted nothing to do with Ethiopia. Railroad tracks were being destroyed to prevent Italian men from being deployed. The roads to Austria and France were gridlocked as Italians were leaving Italy to prevent from getting recruited to fight in Ethiopia. Even Pope Leo XIII himself wrote a letter to Emperor Menelik pleading for the release of Italian prisoners. Anti-colonialist Italians were shouting, Viva Menelik, in the streets of Rome. The irony that Menelik's victory at the Battle of Adwa threatened to destabilize Italy will always be amusing to me. Instead of colonizing Ethiopia, Italy was on the brink of falling apart after Ethiopia defeated them. Menelik Ntaitu understood that Italian prisoners would be valuable in two ways. They would guarantee the recognition of sovereignty of Ethiopia, and they would be traded for cash. In the end, Italy paid 6,301 Italian lire for each prisoner. And with that money, Emperor Menelik and Empress Taitu began the process of rehabilitating the country after the devastation of war and initiating the process of modernizing the country. It goes without saying how invaluable the contributions of Emperor Minilik and Empress Taitu were at Adwa, as well as that of the other major leading figures in general such as Ras Alula, Nugustek Ahamanut, Ras Mikael, and several others. But what about those who are unnecessarily as known? What about those who don't have their pictures mounted everywhere or who aren't as recognizable by the contemporary populace? There are so many other figures who fought just as bravely at Adwa and whose contributions are comparable of that with some of the more acknowledged names, but whose efforts have been forgotten. I believe it's important and our duty that we as Ethiopians do the effort in recognizing the efforts of the unrecognized, particularly those who come from the other peripheral parts of Ethiopia. Figures such as Fetaurari Gejjagarbav Hadiyya, who commanded a squadron of over 5,000 Hadiyya infantry and horsemen, or Obara Nikwa of Gambella, whose brilliant efforts in the battle was rewarded with a hand-picked sword by Emperor Minilik himself. 
or that of Abagaz Walsama of Yifat and Argoba, the Taurari Bergano of Kambata, Kenyasmach Bushara of Alaba, Gerasmach Amerga of the Chahagurage, Kenyasmach Bobash Ker Awud of the Sodogurage, Imam Shafi Hussein of the Kawena, and Asmach Ormora of the Silte, and many, many more honorable mentions and figures who stepped up from all over the Costa country to fight for it all of whom should be honored as true heroes to our country and whose invaluable contributions and sweat deserve just as much praise and our respect. Thousands of Ethiopians died sacrificing their lives for the sake of their country at the Battle of Adwa. People of great renown and anonymous heroes whose sacrifice would be remembered for decades, no, centuries to come. One such warrior who lost his life during the battle was the great Fitaurari meaning commander of the vanguard, Gabeyo, a.k.a. Abagora, a man renowned for his pride as a warrior. It was said that Gabeyo would go into battle sword in, sword in hand, performing Fukara, a type of Ethiopian war chant, as he mowed down his enemies. His soldiers would chant, Goradon Mazo, Wadafiti Yagasa Gasaheda, meaning he sings war chants as he draws his sword and runs forward into battle. There is also a somewhat famous saying referencing Fitaurari Gabeyu in Ethiopia that goes, when Gabeyu died, Paul Chasafo replaced him. They were both capable soldiers who swung cannons on their own. This saying was a testament to Gabeyu's capability as a soldier. Fitaurari Gabeyu was born in Angolala, in Shaw, in the same village as Emperor Minlik II. Gabeyu would enter emperor's, the emperor's service while the latter was still the regional king of Shaw. When they went to war against Italy, he was placed at the head of the emperor's imperial bodyguard. At the Battle of Ambaalage, he fought an uphill battle, leaning on a cane as he had fallen ill. The reason I chose to give Abagora a spotlight as one of the heroes who fell at the Battle of Adwa was because not too many people knew about him. When leading the vanguard at the Battle of Adwa, he turned to Emperor Mildik II and said, quote, My king, if I should die taking a bullet in my back while retreating like a coward, do not bury me in our homeland. But if I should take a bullet to my front while fighting on the front lines, then bury me in our homeland, in Angolala. Emperor Mildik buried him in their birthplace of Angolala Shoa, in central Ethiopia honoring his request as he had died defending Ethiopia in the front lines. A street in Addis Ababa is also named after him. The stories like that of Abagora deserve to be uplifted and remembered. The sacrifice he and thousands of other Ethiopians have made to safeguard our freedom, unity, and independence will never be forgotten. This is just one hero's story out of the tens of thousands at Adwa. For this week's episode, we'd like to thank you guys in Oromifa, or Afanoromo, Galatuma. We hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. Please be sure to follow us on all social media platforms at Tariq Podcast. Bon
ተሰማት አባራት ኦሌ ወሌ እስነ ክስቶት ይገልድሙ ኖራት ኦሌ ወሌ